Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Lovely to be in a packed church. Just a couple of words before I start. A big congratulations to Tony and Angie Krajanisic. I hope I pronounced that right. They've had their baby Kai and he's here today. I understand. Why don't we give them a big clap? Their uh, next child was born. And if I can just say, if you are a TV watcher, um, tomorrow night on Q&A, John Dixon will be one of the panel. He is one of our finest apologists and Christian speakers in the city and they've got an interesting panel. Let me put it that way. Uh, can I just encourage you, not just tune in, but do pray for John as he prepares for that and as he speaks, uh, as he gives witness to the Christian gospel. Uh, that would be a great thing to do. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we understand it, we would understand more of your grace towards us in the Lord Jesus. And so be with us, we pray, this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start uh, with a very important question this morning as we reflect on Jesus' temptation. And if you are new with us, and I know we've got a whole bunch of visitors with the baptism and it's great to see you here today, uh, we're in the beginning of a journey through Luke's Gospel. And Luke records for us very helpfully the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and helps us understand a very important question. And so as we come to his temptation and triumph, the question is this, what actually is the gospel? And it's a word that you'll hear bandied around a lot in Christian circles, particularly in evangelical circles. Um, The gospel is something we talk about believing, it's something we teach, it's something we say we're shaped by. Uh, We have it at the centre of our lives, but what actually is it? Uh, When I say that, am I saying that I believe the Bible? Well, I do believe the Bible, uh, but it isn't necessarily the same question. Um, People can, if I can say, read the Bible, yet miss the Gospel. But it's worth saying, you can't understand the Gospel without reading the Bible. They're intimately connected. So what is it? Well, the word Gospel, um, it comes out of the Greco-Roman world, And it was a word that meant to announce something and particularly it would be announcing good news. Now, I've been announcing good news. My daughter's getting married in 13 days. The count is getting closer. I'm out of weeks and down to days. And uh, it's exciting. I want to let people know. It's here on 2 o'clock, 2nd of March, Saturday afternoon. I hope it's packed like this. I'm not doing it. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'll do lots of weddings. I only have two daughters and it's an exciting day. Uh, That's a gospel. Uh, There was a gospel in the Roman world. One of the Caesars announced a gospel. It was the birth of his son. He was proclaiming him uh, in divine terms. And we come to Luke's gospel. What is his message? What does he want to proclaim to the world? Well, we're at chapter 4. And for those who missed the first three chapters... Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 people are very familiar with, even if you're not a regular at church, because they tell us the story of Christmas. And what's being proclaimed there is that someone who was hoped for, prophesied, looked forward to, who will come from the house of David has arrived in this world. And the great message of Christmas, the very famous words, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Uh, There's a proclamation there that this child is not an ordinary child. He is a king. He is a saviour. And he comes from the house of David. He is the greater David. As you go through chapter 3, John the Baptist begins his ministry. His ministry was about introducing this Jesus. Who is he? Well, we see in chapter 3 that he is both the son of God and the son of humanity. 
at Jesus' baptism, you hear the words, this is my son that come from heaven. And then Luke helpfully shows us that this one who is the one proclaimed as God's son actually has his lineage right back to being a child of Adam. So he's not just the son of God, he is in fact the son of all humanity. He's one that we can all relate to. And then Luke takes us to a story of a temptation. We come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so why has Luke put this here? He's been telling us something about who he is proclaiming that Jesus is, but what will he come to do? What is the gospel? Uh, Is it that Jesus is this amazing guy and that the essence of the message is follow him, imitate him? Or is it something different? Is it something more? Are we to learn from this story about the temptation of Jesus helpful ways to overcome temptation? Or is there something more profound at work here? Well, if you've got your Bibles there, if you're a visitor here, they're underneath the seats in front. Um, Do join me as we have a look at this passage because it's got some incredible things to show us. We're at page 1017 uh, in the Red Pew Bibles. If you've got your own or if you've got it on your phone, uh, do open up there. It's worth saying about the E100 Challenge. Uh, That commences on the 3rd of March. So we're getting people to sign up now. We're going to start the journey as a whole church reading the Word of God together over 100 days, 3rd of March. Let me read to you the first two verses. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. I mean, it's a fairly obvious thing to say, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, and he was hungry. Now, in terms of getting meaning out of a narrative, the, the, uh, if I can say, the significance is in the details. Uh, it's in the individual words and the way they're put together and in particular with narrative. Places and times and dates can often have great significance. Even one word can be incredibly significant. And to illustrate this, let me give you a couple of words uh, that, if I can say, speak into our Australian culture. And I can just put up one or two words or one or two numbers and they will have incredible meaning behind them. Gallipoli. What does that evoke in your memory and consciousness? Now, some of you here may have relatives who fought at Gallipoli. Some of you may have been those who now join the throng of people who go to Turkey on Anzac Day to remember Gallipoli. An incredible, if I can say, event has evolved. I wrote down these words. It's a famous defeat. Uh, It was a nation-defining moment. It's a memorial to the atrocity and stupidity of war, lest we forget. One word, incredible meaning. Uh, Two words, Kokoda Trail. Some here, it's possible, may even have been on that trail on that day. There may be some here who have relatives who fought in that campaign. It will evoke great memories for people. A famous victory on this day. Uh, No-name soldiers against a rampaging and brutal professional killing force. Victory in the face of adversity with the famous Aussie fighting spirit where mateship was born. 
they were the reserves of Australia who didn't go on the first group to the deserts of North Africa. They were the no-name people. Two words, incredible memories. Let me put two numbers up for you that will evoke incredible memories and significance. 9-11. Uh, it was the day, if I can say, when the Western world's innocence regarding terrorism, and particularly America, was shattered. The world changed that day, didn't it? And you only have to utter those two numbers, 9-11. And there's incredible significance. Now, why do I say this? Because as we come to this narrative, there are words and numbers that are uttered that for us in the 21st century may not have the full significance that if you were a Jewish person reading this in the first century that would have jumped off the pages. And I want to go back and look at the individual words and phrases and numbers because they unlock the significance of this passage for us to help us see the gospel. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that phrase, you may be surprised to know, is not a common phrase. It's one that is used by Luke. But there is another person in the Old Testament who was described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know who it was? It was Joshua. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. If you're not familiar with the Hebrew language and the Greek language, um, Joshua actually is a translation for Jesus, vice versa. They mean the same thing. One who saves... Joshua was presented to the people of God as one who would save. We have a second Joshua being presented here as one who will save. Second word, the Jordan. Now, who's been to Israel? Anyone been? A few people have been there? Uh, Very significant place in world history. The Jordan is a river, small river, It's on the eastern boundary of Israel at that point. And it was the place where Joshua was to lead the people of God out of the desert and into the land of Israel. Let me read to you what happens in Joshua chapter 3. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great, great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. While the water flowed down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea was completely cut off. That's the Dead Sea as we know today. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Uh, The Jordan is this very significant place because God literally opened the waters and they crossed on dry land and entered the land. And what we're being told here is that another Joshua is coming and he's gone, if I can say, in reverse. He's gone back across the Jordan to the other side. And the third word is this, the wilderness or the desert. Now, if I use these words, uh, if you're an American, what are the memories that are evoked for you? Pearl Harbour. Now, 
you only have to say those two words together and you know it is a famous defeat that marked the entrance of the United States into World War II. Now, if I can say this one for people who have Japanese heritage, and I'm not meaning to offend in using this, but I just have to say Hiroshima. And another very, very significant event is evoked that marked the end of the war in the Pacific and the terrible destruction. When you use the word the desert to an Israelite, and you're talking about going across the Jordan, memories are evoked of a great defeat, of great disobedience. Uh, In fact, so great that they wrote a psalm about it and it's one that would be recited and sung. Psalm 95. It was a call to worship as they gathered with God and the call to worship finishes this way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah, in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they'd seen what I did for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are the people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my way, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Uh, The desert was the place where Israel failed, where they disobeyed and where they were judged under God. And it was a place that evoked great memories in their national consciousness. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, a second Joshua, crosses the Jordan River, if I can say, to go out of the land and he goes to the desert where Israel failed. And he's there for 40 days. Now, one of the interesting things in the Bible is how this number keeps coming up. 40 days was the period that Noah was in the ark when the world was flooded. 40 days was the period when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law. 40 days was the period that... um, was given when Jonah proclaimed judgment on Nineveh. And 40 days is the period Jesus goes and fasts because you see there's another 40. 40 years Israel wandered under God's judgment in the desert. And why did they wander? I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 16. They have just left Egypt. They have seen the parting of the Red Sea. They have seen the plagues that have come on judgment on the false gods of Egypt. They have seen miracles that are beyond our imagination. And yet as soon as they went out, they began to grumble. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, After they'd come out of Egypt, roughly about 45 days, in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They had seen miracles that were incredible. They lived them, went through them and yet they did not trust God to feed them. It's quite incredible. And Jesus, when he begins his ministry, is full of the Holy Spirit. He crosses the Jordan River. 
He goes out into the desert for 40 days and he ate nothing. And the eating of nothing is significant. You see, the test that Israel had was when they were hungry. They had no food. And Jesus replicates the exact test and trial of faith that the people of God went through and failed in. And he goes out to do it all again. What happens? Let's look at verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The first test relates to, if I can put it this way, to provision. And you see, that was the great failing of Israel. They did not trust that God would provide for them. And I want to say, I don't know if we're any different today. One of the great struggles we have is, will God provide for us if I put my faith in him? You'll see it in all number of manner of uh, scenarios. But it will come down to this question as we go through difficult times in life, is there a God who loves me and will provide for me? Jesus is put to that exact same test as he doesn't eat. And he doesn't eat for 40 days. And the devil says, look, surely... I can feed you. Tell this stone to become bread. You see, he's taunting him. God's not feeding you. Trust in me. And I love Jesus' response. And it comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote to teach the people of God after they'd failed how they should respond. And quoting directly from Deuteronomy, he says, actually it's written, man, woman does not live on bread alone. In fact, we live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I will trust in God, is what Jesus is saying. No, I will not give in to the temptation. Uh, the second test is the test of worship. Who do we really worship? Who do we really want? The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendour for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Now tell me, friends, who wouldn't want that? Imagine being led up to one of the tallest stories down at the quay and someone stood there who was a billionaire and said, deny your faith but I will give you whatever you want. You can have it all. Just look around and tell me what you want and it's yours. Who would not grow weak at the knees? I would. That's what the devil was offering him. And listen to Jesus' response. It is written, the word of God says, it's in Deuteronomy again, actually worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I don't care what you'll offer me. The one who I worship actually is God and I don't want your filthy money. You see, it's interesting. What did Israel want? They didn't want the God who had saved them. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they were enslaved because, well, they looked after them better there. They had pots of meat. They did not want to worship God. He wasn't the one they wanted. They did not want to go through the difficulties and the trials so that they could be with the God who had saved them in the promised land. But not Jesus, he endured because 
the focus of his heart was to worship the living God. Then there's a third test. And it's the test of protection. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. He said, if you're the son of God, and you see the devil's clever, he will pick up on our weaknesses. And he knows that Jesus has been declared son of God at his baptism. Well, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard them carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Who here would like to, in a sense, um, have the, the reality of God proved to them in that way? Jump off the cliff at the bower and God to send his angels to rescue. Wow, wouldn't that be fantastic? What a great experience, kind of a divine bungee jump. And that will prove God to you. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is not enough. Jesus says, do not put the Lord God to, your, to the test. Um, he did not need anyone to protect him or prove to him the reality of God. Uh, this is a great anatomy of the failings of humanity, these tests that Jesus go through. Uh, because you see, the essence of faith is that we will believe God will provide for us we believe he is the one who is worthy of all of our worship and we give it to him. And we believe he is the one who will protect us and deliver us. And Israel failed on every count. And I want to say to us, friends, I think we fail on every count when you actually strip us down to bare bones. I am weak. We are weak. We don't trust God the way we should. We don't worship him and have him as the goal and direction of our life as we should. We don't believe in him in the way we should. You see, here's the good news. Jesus went out to do what we could never do. Why is this story here? It's to proclaim to you good news. You see, where we fail, where Israel failed, Jesus came to triumph, to demonstrate that he is the one who will be a saviour. You see, is the gospel a message that this is this incredible person, this Christ, this king, whom you follow and imitate? Well, at a primary base level, I would say no. Though, when you understand the gospel, you will seek to do that. You see, if he's just one we imitate, then we should join those in the Philippines who at Easter time literally are crucified imitating Christ. Because you see, the gospel for them is you need to live a better and better life in order to be accepted. But that's actually not the Bible's message. The Bible's message is we can never live that better life because we've failed. But there is one who has lived it for us, who has triumphed where we fail, who is strong when we're weak, who is obedient where we disobey, who believes when we struggle with unbelief. And here's the good news. He did it for us. He triumphed for you. Where you struggle, where you disobey, where you are weak, 
where we are wrong, he was strong and faithful and obedient. His life of perfection was lived not to model primarily how we should live but to save us. There is a day coming when all of us will face judgment under God and we will have to give account for our life. And there's only one of two options. You can either stand before him with your guilty life and the results will be sure. It will be judgment and you will be sent away and hell is real. Or you can stand there having accepted Christ's life for you and forgiveness for your life. And you'll be saved and you'll be accepted on the basis of what Christ has done for you. And this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. He triumphs where we fail. And he will give you his perfect life and he will take your broken, mixed up and sinful life and he'll take it to the cross where it will be nailed and forgiven. So that on the final day you can stand before the living God with his perfect life, united in him, forgiven of your sins. Friends, that's the gospel. Jesus triumphs where we fail. And the gospel is great news. Do you know why? Because it's a word of grace. It's a word of acceptance to people who don't deserve it and who failed and who are weak. And this story, yes, it will help you understand about how to overcome temptation. You see the power of God's word at work to strengthen a person. But if that's all you understand it is, you've missed the point. The point is Jesus triumphs where we fail. And friends, to understand that in your own life, it means accepting him and believing in him and receiving him as your Lord and your Saviour. And then you start to follow. And friends, if you haven't done that, it's very simple. It's a matter of saying, I realise I'm broken, I'm weak and I'm sinful and I need you and I need your life and I need your death. I need your forgiveness. I need your acceptance. And Jesus says, I love you. Come. Come and receive my life and receive my forgiveness. And friends, if that's you this morning, why don't we finish with a word of prayer? Let's bow our heads as we finish in prayer and if you need to receive Christ this morning, his love, his grace, his triumph on your behalf, his death, his forgiveness, then let us pray. Father, we thank you. The gospel is good news. It's a word of grace for people who are broken and weak and failing. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, the son of God, to triumph where we fail and ultimately to die so that we can be forgiven. Help me to accept him as my Lord and my Saviour. In Jesus' name, Amen.